CITR 101.9 FM. Wow, I have not done that in a while where I did the uh, appropriate uh, moment of silence at a la College Radio. So, uh, Ink Studs out of Vancouver, UBC, CITR 101.9 FM. Um, I'm joined this week by my good friend James Lloyd, who's uh, made the trek from wherever James lives to here. So Thank you, James. It's a, it's a hot day here. Yeah, miserably hot. And I managed not to burn up completely on the way over here. These translucent night creatures that you insist come out in the day. Yeah. Um, but thanks for having me anyways. So. It's the, the, the Vancouver, uh, I don't know. It's bad. It's hot here. And it's hot in the studio. James and I are both probably going to be sweating our through our shirts by the end of the show. Um, but I think that's okay. Yeah. James joined me today specifically because of our topic of conversation. I am joined on the phone by Mr. Dennis Kitchen. Have I got you there, Dennis? You do, Robin. Excellent. Now, uh, Dennis has uh, got a couple of books right now. The, the, primary, bleh, the primary focus of today is the uh, new one from uh, Abrams, The uh, Art of Harvey Kurtzman, uh, Mad Comics of Genius, as well um, almost like a companion piece in a way as the the next generation underground classics transformation of comic 
books into comics and uh for a little biographical information uh i guess uh kitchen press or um kitchen sink press for many years as well uh the old uh comics book back in the day marvel's uh brief uh attempt at doing uh, an underground comic which i guess ended up with you publishing the last two issues so right. so anything i'm missing probably a lot <laughs> Well, yes, probably, but we'll fill it in. Okay. Now, um, I guess in connection with uh, Harvey Kurtzman, you kind of manage the estate. That's so to right. Say. My uh, partner John Lind and I, our agency represents the estate. Um, going back to the seventies, I I published Harvey, um, became his friend, and. Uh, so it was a long relationship, and uh, Harvey died in '93, I think. And um, uh, so, you know, I, I wish he could have lived at least as long as Will Eisner or Carl Barks, and and been healthy, because uh, there's so many more amazing things we would have seen. But if uh, if you've read the book, you know, it was a, a, a largely tragic life, uh, despite all the accomplishments. Mm-hmm. He he the. I guess we'll start out with why is Harvey Kurtzman important, and then sure. we'll maybe cover his accomplishments in life. And well, you know, if he did nothing more than create Mad, um, he'd he'd have a, a I think a, a very memorable um, a legacy because uh, Mad was so influential in so many ways, uh, not just on the comic book industry but the culture at large. Um, as uh, Harry Shearer mentions in the introduction, there's all kinds of things that uh, probably owe their existence uh, to uh, to Mad, the, the brand of humor, and it certainly extended to TV and to Hollywood. and uh, And I and I think, according to Art Spiegelman in particular, it it, it was a direct uh, prelude to that uh, generation I was part of, the the counterculture. That began questioning everything that uh, during the fifties um, was certainly not uh, fashionable to uh, to challenge. So, uh, uh, in that regard, people early on in underground comics uh, began to call Harvey the father of undergrounds, and being the clever guy he was um, and modest, he he shirked that title and he preferred to call himself the father-in-law of undergrounds. <laughs> Now, let's, I guess, jump into the beginning then. Well, the, I guess the create. I'm trying to think. Do you want to? Let's start out with high school. His high school, where he came from. That's, that's so fascinating of, of that route, of that scene he was part of, or that far, group of talented folks. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny. And, I, and, you know, you wonder how much of it is coincidence and how much of it was the nature of the relationships. But he ended up, uh, you know, uh, in in a class where uh, at least four or five or six of of his classmates were professionals uh, in the comic book industry, some working with him on Mad, um, and um, you know the odds of that sound astronomical. Um, but certainly, uh, Will Elder was uh, I think a year ahead of him, and uh, John Severin and uh, Harry Chester who was not specifically a cartoonist, but who was the, the business manager for several of Harvey's magazines. And uh, who am I forgetting? Um, Al Feldstein might have been there, too. Yeah, Al was there. That's Al, right. And that's uh, right. Al Jaffe. 
Jaffe, yes, that's right. Um, in fact, Al Feldstein, um, even more ironically, you know, replaced Harvey at Mad Magazine, so then it's even more <laughs> astronomical yeah. beyond calculation. Yeah, it's so strange that the uh, history of uh, American comics, just how much was created by this concise little group of what seemed to be mostly just Jewish kids in New York in the 30s created the whole, <laughs> yeah. to create the whole medium. I'm not sure what kind of lightning in a bottle was uh, occurring at that time, but... Uh, Something in the juice. Yeah, it's the... just so odd how... Uh, it is. Well, you know, that's probably a whole other show, but yes, I mean, the, the whole Jewish element, uh, there's no question, it was um, way, way dominant in the comic book industry because you had all the comic book guys like Will Eisner and Bob Kane and Jack Kirby and on and on. Um, uh, occasionally you'd see a Gentile here and there, but it was a, <laughs> it was a Jewish industry from top to bottom, and that included uh, the printers, the distributors, the publishers. Um, so, I mean, several books have come out in recent years about that, so it's not a topic we need to focus on here, but, um, you know, part of it was just economic opportunity when, um, at that point in time, most Jews were probably locked out of the uh, prime uh, publishing positions. Even the comic syndicate world was a much more waspish uh, uh or organization in that mm-hmm. um, kind of the opposite percentage was there. You could count probably on one hand the number of Jews with syndicated strips in the 30s. You had Rube Goldberg and Harry Hirschfeld and Al Cap, and and you got to think a little bit. Um, whereas um, in the comic book industry, you could count the non-Jews on one hand. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and and, I, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you know. That's basically the way it was. Yeah, and there, I think there's been a lot of treaties written on why that was and what it was about the Jewish mentality that led to the yeah. humor and the and the medium itself. Um, which, I, yeah, you're probably right, is too broad a topic for today. Um, but going back to Kurtzman's youth, uh, one of the things I wanted to say, um, apart from the fact that it's just a great book overall, I should mention that right off the bat. I'm a huge Harvey Kurtzman fan. This is the book I've been dreaming of. It's just a, a wonderful, wonderful compendium of what he's done. What I appreciated um, from the first page on is that there's so much in here about um, Harvey Kurtzman's youth that I hadn't read before. There's very little of in the articles that I have um, that talk about anything really pre his comics career. Right. And you've got um, a lot of research on his youth and some great archival stuff. Um, was this you or your writing partner that dug some of this up? Well, Paul Buell was a great collaborator here. And um, I have to say... I. You know, when I started this project, I thought, well, I know pretty much all there is to know about Harvey, but um, one of the things Paul and I did early on was together go and interview Adele, Harvey's widow. And I've talked to Adele countless times over the years, but um, Paul had a different line of inquiry, and uh, and it proved to be very helpful here because um, in that meeting, I learned for the first time, as did Paul, that, that Harvey was actually uh, briefly put into a... Uh, um, a home. His mother essentially abandoned him for, uh, you know, the better part of a year. And uh, that had to have uh, left some scarring. Um, his brother was also, um, you know, uh, briefly orphaned. The father had died, and the mother just couldn't handle it during this point of time. She later came and rescued him with her uh, second husband. Um, but 
you know, what effect that had, we'll never know. Harvey never talked about it. I never mentioned it in all the years I knew him, but Adele was aware of it. So um, I would say uh, Paul's real depth of, of expertise, and he's a very smart guy who's written, I think, 32 books. Um, he uh, specializes in American history, specifically leftist uh, history, like the socialist movement, Oh. And he's also an expert in the, in um, the American Jewish experience, even though he himself is not. Um, he's such a scholar that he actually um, uh, learned Yiddish so he could read all these <laughs> old publications. So, so th- th- that's a serious scholar. Yeah, no kidding. Um, what what was a little fascinating to him was to to find that his expertise in in all things Jewish was not particularly relevant here because um, as Adele, who is herself Jewish, kept stressing, Harvey uh, was very secular. His um, parents, in fact, were so secular. Um, you know, I mean, there was neither he nor his brothers were ever bar mitzvahed. They his. His parents subscribed to the uh, Daily Worker. They were communist-leaning. Harvey was never um, uh, remotely as political as his parents, but he grew up in, um, uh, you know, a, a, a very secular, very progressive a family where religion was not part of it. And other than the heritage, uh, the only thing I think seeps into the work is a lot of these Yiddish-sounding phrases you see in uh, in Mad. Um, well, I once wrote that he brought a sort of Borscht Belt sense of humor to comics. You know? Exactly, so and I, I think that's specific- fair. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of specifically Jewish in a way. It is. It is. Well, I'm quickly curious, because a lot of folks change their names, um, Jewish cartoonists, to have an easier time getting into the media, or just, you know, whatever. Um, but Harvey didn't change his. No, I think he and Will Eisner are the two of... Uh, I mean, I would argue the greatest, who uh, who didn't, <laughs> who I think, t- to me, uh, it gives you a sense that both were very self-assured young men who um, both didn't want to compromise on principle and uh, who uh, were just very stubborn. Mm-hmm. Um, Will had pseudonyms like Spencer Steele and <laughs> such, <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean he abandoned his real name. He was just trying to pretend he was seven artists when the... Eisner Iger Studio started. Now, one thing that that is unique about Kurtzman in kind of the time frame of where he is is that um, he it seems to me he has a certain passion and love of the medium of comics itself. Right. Was that? Do you know much about that background of like what I know? He he um, his parents. I, I told you the newspaper of oh, yeah. their choice, <laughs> and so they would not allow, for example, a Hearst newspaper in their house. But the Hearst papers had Harvey felt the best comics, so he had to go and fish <laughs> the neighbors' uh, Sunday comics out of the trash on Monday in order to see his favorite comics. So there was a certain surreptitiousness to it, which in a weird <laughs> way parallels my generation, which had to, you know, kind of surreptitiously read comic books like Mad and Humbug. So, yes, he loved them as a kid, and they had a tremendous impact on him. And his favorite ones uh, continued to reappear throughout the parodies um, 
whether it was, you know, Mad or Little Annie Fanny or whatever. In particular, Flash Gordon and Little Abner um, are strips that he recurringly went back to. Now, what was his first uh, real foray into comics? Well, certainly the one um, that people might have heard of is, hey, look, there were some um, pretty obscure ones that he did early on um, for uh, the old Marvel when it was called Timely. And, um, uh, you know, in the book, we certainly have excerpts of those, but they're not um, things that are household words. Hey, look, was the one that ironically um, was intended to be forgettable filler. Uh, You have to understand, in the context of the 1940s, when comic books were as low as you can go in the cultural chain, I mean, I I dare you to find something (laughs) regarding that. (laughs) So in that lowest of the low medium, the filler pages were the lowest. And... uh, what a filler meant really was uh, figure timely and all the other publishers tried to sell advertising. And, you know, if you look through those old comics, there are some ads. Um, um, and if the sales department could fill their six-page or eight-page allotment, great. But if they were short a page or two, they had to stick something in as they were going to press. And that's what a filler was. It literally filled the space they couldn't sell in the marginal pages. So that meant um, Harvey was doing these things that may or may not appear in any given month. Um, And so he needed a backlog where Stan Lee would literally have a drawer with these fillers, and if someone in production said, hey, we need a page, they'd just pull out one of those, and and it would fill uh, the the bill. In fact, he even did some half-pagers, because occasionally they'd be a half-page off. And so he ended up doing about, I think, 150 of these uh, from the early 40s to the late 40s. And if you look at them, you can actually see the young, still immature talent um, maturing and the style getting crisper and the sense of humor getting sharper. And you can see him literally experimenting on the page. And by the end of it, um, it it's, it's, he's doing some pretty classic stuff. And... Um, The other interesting thing about, hey, look, to put this in perspective is, again, it was regarded as so unimportant to uh, Stan Lee and his uh, relative, uh, Martin Goodman, who owned the company, that they allowed Harvey to uh, keep the copyright, (laughs) which was virtually unheard of, you know, in those days. So so later, Kitchen Sink was able to collect those um, directly with Harvey. We didn't need to, to go through Marvel. Well, that ties um, in with Eisner a bit, too, and that Will Eisner kept his... Uh, exactly, and again, and they were, were two of the guys, uh, again, you could count on one hand, who owned their copyrights in the 1940s. Yeah, but uh, on the subject of Hey, Look, um, it's interesting, when I first saw the book Hey, Look in the 90s, um, not being familiar with it, it really looked like the work of a veteran, accomplished cartoonist, and I think he might have been... Early 40s, I think he wasn't even 20 at the time. That's right. Um, um, well, let's see. Harvey was born in 1924, so uh, 
he was doing them really right after the war. He was probably just 20 or 21. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, so the other thing I love about this book, too, is actually it's got artwork from his high school years in here and the work he did in the uh, military for some of the military papers. So you can see, even though he clearly was a prodigy early on, you can see him developing that style. And people who know what I'm talking about, Kurtzman had a very distinct look to what he did, and it seemed to arrive just on the map completely polished and here you can actually see it starting to develop and it's there in some of those early hey look strips but by the end of it i would say uh the hey look run he's harvey kurtzman which is a very bold style i guess we'll probably talk about a little later in sure. terms of the marks that he made um you know i don't think anybody made more powerful brush lines than harvey kurtzman's <laughs> i i certainly agree with you um i think that's an astute observation yeah now the hey look transitions um pretty quickly into uh the ec and i think that's where his greatest impact made um when was he how soon was he able to really be more of an auteur in his work and be more of i guess the control freak well in a way i mean you could argue uh that hey look even though he did it for timely and it was filler because it was so unimportant he had no real direction from Stan Lee. Stan basically didn't care as long as he turned it in. You know, he got paid. I think he was getting paid like $35 a page back then. And he was basically cranking out, you know, um, uh, one a week. Uh, no, not one a week, but, uh, it, you know, it was paying his rent. Uh, and I think uh, if you recall, uh, if you uh, anyone who's read the book, uh, right after Stan killed uh, hey, look, he forced Harvey to do a feature called Rusty, which was a deliberate um, imitation of the Blondie strip. And that one, he was very particular how it looked, and so was uh, Martin Goodman, and it was very awkward for Harvey. He hated it. He ended up doing 50-some pages, and he said it was like the worst time of his career because... Um, a, they insisted he kept going closer and closer to Chick Young's style, which he thought was unethical. But that's what Marvel was like in those days. Uh, they made their reputation um, imitating other things that were successful. Uh, what One of my favorite pages uh, in the book was the tryout page he did for that when he was afraid he would have to turn out Archie-type stories. And so he actually depicted an Archie-like character stabbing a Jughead and uh, and uh, attacking, uh, I think it was Veronica, <laughs> and ripping off her blouse. And that was intended only for Stan Lee's eyes, and, and it miraculously survived. Yes, but if you look at that one, and it's beautiful because it's done in kind of the, the, the style of the late hey looks, and I think on the opposite page is the rusty sample, and it doesn't even look like the no, same guy because so you can just tell he has to do rusty. It's an awkward, um, you know, style that's forced upon him. And uh, if he wasn't starving, you know, he would have probably flipped the finger. But, <laughs> um, uh, well, so, so uh, in in terms of when he really became the auteur officially, I mean, I guess most people would argue it was the the, the mad era because he was given carte blanche by publisher Bill Gaines. And uh, anyone who's looked at those early mads and understands how revolutionary they were and how Harvey essentially... Um, 
mean, other than his collaborators, he was a one-man band. Uh, it was his concept. He wrote the stories. He laid out the stories. He drew most of the covers, and he gave very specific uh, compositions to each of the artists. And had he had more time, <laughs> he would have inked them as well. Um, so I would say, in, in, in any summary of his career, you'd have to say Mad is what um, brought him his first real acclaim and national attention. But that does kind of segue into his career at EC, which he, I think he started in EC fairly shortly after finishing those Hey Look strips uh, for Timely. But it seemed even then, when I think he was hired by uh, Gaines based on his artwork, um, he sort of took control of the ship early on in that he wanted to do his own title, which was in fact an adventure strip, or an adventure comic called Two-Fisted Tales, which I think started out just as that, an adventure comic, and it eventually, I think quickly, became uh, Kurtzman's own book again, where he suddenly started doing these gritty war stories, and then ultimately it became um, a classic book again, you know, um, something that was kind of unheard of at the time, which was to do realistic war stories, but I think it started largely just as an adventure book. Yes, I, I think, yeah, basically he put his own imprint on it early, and he did uh, the Two-Fisted Tales um, and Frontline Combat. And they're, uh, you know, for the most part, they're still magnificent stories today. And it seems almost too obvious to say, well, he did realistic war stories. What's the big deal? Well, if you go back and you look at the war comics of the day, uh, you know, it was just really over-the-top, gung-ho, patriotic, mindless uh, stuff where the Americans were always 100% right and the uh, Nazis were stupid and the Japanese were um, racist stereotypes in the Korean War, the what they call gooks back then had big buck teeth and bright yellow skin and they were all stupid because uh they were constantly losing and getting shot and the only time you saw them winning was when they were committing some atrocity that you know you had to have revenge for and so there was um it was truly two-dimensional and harvey who you know uh though he hadn't served in a combat role he certainly um um was in the army and he understood um uh, the, the horrors of war, and he certainly had uh, comrades who had been there who shared stories with him. And he realized um, at, at, at you know war, like everything in life, uh, there there's a lot of gray and a lot of ambivalence, and uh, mostly it's a horrible thing, as necessary as it sometimes is for you know a society to protect itself. Um, nobody's always a good guy, and um, you know. Same with nobody always being a bad guy. That was um, a unique position to take in, in the early 50s. I want to do a quick song break because we're about half past the hour. And then um, when we get back, uh, we'll talk maybe about a couple of specific uh, war stories. Um, one I'm thinking of is the one you reprint uh, entirely as Corpse in the Engine. Sound good? Sure. All right. We'll be right back. Ink Stud, CITR 101.9 FM. And, uh, yeah, we'll be right back.
CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Ink Stud Show. Uh, just to let people know some guests that are coming up. Next week, I will be talking to Michael Cooperman about his uh, latest collection and comic issue, um, Tales Designed to Thrizzle. And the week after that, um, Brad McKay will be coming on to discuss the new uh, Doug Wright collection. Um, Canadiana at its finest. I think I'll probably be drinking maple syrup just to add to my Canadianisms uh, while we're doing this. And the week after that, Katie Beaton will be coming on. Speaking of Canadians, Canada's insanely popular webcomic person who is a history geek like myself. And that will also be a uh, second half of that show. I'll be joined by Brandon Graham, James Stoku, and a bunch of other guys in preparation for Vancouver's very own Comics and Stories comic convention, which you will be at, won't you, James? Um, fingers crossed, yeah. There we go. <laughs> James's ambivalent answer. And uh, the week after will probably be uh, Paul Karasik to talk about Fletcher Hanks. Doing a lot of these wow. talking about uh, folk shows, but um, all very uh, interesting folks with uh, a lot of good stuff to say. Um, one quick comment about the music. That was uh, Paul Whiteman, um, Charleston. And before that, we started the hour with uh, Julia Lee and her boyfriends off of the album Reefer Songs. Lotus Blossom. Dennis, what is it with underground comic artists and music of this era? <laughs> well, first of all, by the way, thanks for allowing your guests to pick their own music. That's uh, <laughs> never happened to me before. It makes life a lot less stressful for me, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I can only speak for myself, but I know it's one of the things I learned early on. I shared with Robert Crumb in particular, and... Uh, uh, when I first met Al Williamson, certainly a you know an older generation, but he told me when he was drawing, it was an old blues and jazz, and we instantly bonded over that. Um, it certainly precedes uh, me. I mean, I'm older than you guys, I trust, but um, the songs we're playing tonight um, were all recorded before I was born. I just love the stuff, and I, I I can't explain it. Um, you know, it's it's. Uh... I had uh, Kim Daichon, um, I guess that was a couple of years ago now, and he yeah. sent me this box of music to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing after 1870. What was it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. I mean, everything from Kim is, uh, uh, yeah, it goes back to an earlier era, it seems. But uh, but anyway, it, it's, it's uh, gratefully appreciated. <laughs> now back to... The topic at hand, Mr. Harvey Kurtzman, um, last year in Vancouver we had this uh, art show called the uh, Crazy Shows at the Vancouver Art Gallery, and it was a mix of a whole bunch of pop culture-ish art forms. It, it, I feel kind of weird saying it. it it's, parts of it didn't sit right with me. But the neat part, the great part, was the comics part, uh, carried by uh, <laughs> Seth and uh, Art Spiegelman, previously mentioned. And... Um, there was uh, the pages from Corpse of the Imjin there. Corpse on the right. on, on the Imjin. Thank and you. And I James. think you also had pages from Jungle Book. Yep. Um, yes. The yes. organization man in the gray flannel suit. It was Fair a, enough. and it was actually I think it was the, the first you saw the Crazy Cat pages, and then the next thing was the Kurtzman stuff when you walked in. Oh, okay. So it was a perfect way to start out. Good yeah. To know. I mean, I give thumbs up to that show just for that alone. You know. In terms of looking at the uh, glasses half full, that's overflowing. We've <laughs> okay, got good. Herman and Kurtzman together, so so yeah. props to the Vancouver Art Gallery, I think, for <laughs> sorry, for I'm that. so bitter and jaded. <laughs> but the, corp, the corpse on the engine, um, and 
the reason uh, Maria, like that was in the show here. So a lot of folks in Vancouver probably saw that because I mean, Vancouver Art Gallery is our solitary art gallery. Um, not much else to choose from in that aspect as far as big venues. Um, and then you also printed in here in your book in Harvey's book um, in its entirety. So w- what is it about that particular story? Well, you, I, I think a number of stories could have been reprinted, and um, this one just was always a personal favorite. Um, one of the things um, I like about it is is how it defies the 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 concept of what a comic looked like at that time, which was they were always action packed, as you, you described earlier. This was a series of adventure stories, and yet that splash page is a very sedate. Um, it's probably the least action-packed uh, splash page you know you could find, <laughs> and uh, action does begin three or four pages into, it, and it gets very intense. But then again, it ends on a very sedate note where the corpse is literally floating down uh, the river, and so it's uh, it's certainly specifically about the Korean War, but uh, it talks about you know respect for the dead in general, and it's. Um, uh, it's it's basically um, while the Korean War is going on. Remember, this is a contemporary piece he's doing. Mm-hmm. So it'd be like a cartoonist doing something today about, uh, say, you know, the war in Afghanistan. The difference is back in the early fifties, it was a very different America, and people were assumed to be patriotic and not question the government, not question the government's um, motives. And Harvey's not really. Um, uh, being a traitor here, but he's certainly saying, uh, you know, besides war is hell, he's saying, you know, uh, a lot of people are getting killed. There's a lot of anonymous uh, uh, deaths, as we would say today, collateral deaths. Um, and and basically, it's a reflection on, on on life and death, the shortness of life, how intense, um, you know, um, it can be the soldier, as I recall, it's not right in front of me, but he's he's sitting there observing another corpse go by when suddenly he's attacked. And uh, his life changes very quickly, and it's literally a battle to the death. And uh, so you have this bookend where a different corpse then is floating down the river. And nobody was doing stories like that. Um, it's typical of the way um, Harvey would... Um, would, would take uh, what what most would regard as a small, inconsequential detail, build a story around it. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> uh, it's just uh, reflective stories rather than flam-bam stories. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it's a real good choice for the book because it's... Uh it's not only a great story, um, and I think one of the things that uh, affects me about it is it really doesn't take sides in that sense. I mean, there's sort of a universality towards the uh, two soldiers, and there's only two characters in that story, um, an American and a Korean soldier. And uh, not only that, but it should be noted that it's all drawn by Harvey, which was very rare in those books. He usually did the planning yeah. stages, and one of his collaborators would do the finished work, Jack Davis, uh, Will Elder, Wally Wood and a handful of others, and again, by printing uh, these pages from the originals, you really get a look at his working progress. Um, I was saying before about this bold look that he has, if you look what he does with it constantly throughout the story, 
It's all about eliminating details. So when you see the corpse on the river, the river is either completely black or completely white. And you can actually see his whiteout where he's, t- he's drawn ripples in and then he takes them out with whiteout. It's almost like he just wants that black figure that's in that white to just completely pop. Exactly. And it yes, speaks so much for his, uh, his vision, really, beyond pretty drawing. Yeah. Well, it's, it, artistically, it, it speaks so strongly of just the stylistic use. And yeah, I'll... Just second what you say, James. Yeah. Yeah. There's also, there's another just a splash in there, which was Harvey's personal favorite, which was the splash to airburst, which um, as just a composition, it's almost abstract. It's a a Korean soldier evading a spray of bullets. And if you look at it and you kind of squint your eyes and you don't really realize what's there, it's just, it's a marvelous, almost abstract, um, quality to it no it's true and in that vein right on the page next to it and i have to say this on a personal note my favorite cover of all time you've got the original artwork for it here it's frontline combat number seven which was the a document to the action at iwo jima and i couldn't do justice to it in words over the radio um but again it's great being able to see the original for it i think the reason it it um had such an effect on me is that it's basically a lone soldier hunched over a rock who's obviously just gone through the heat of the battle and i think it's probably um one of the most impressive examples of the way he worked you know minimum amount of lines but there's just such um power to the figure and the face in particular somehow He's made this kid look 18 years old and 100 years old with about five lines, just through the <laughs> writing, the expression. So that face always haunted me. This kid's got this death head stare. and uh, Yeah, the eyes uh, are, there's a lot of black around the eyes, yeah. And uh, I love that cover. So again, it was great um, seeing the original. I have to ask, being um, the caretaker of Kurtzman's estate, does this mean that you actually have this piece of artwork in your possession? No, actually, uh, that and um, uh, several of these were loaned by Glenn Bray, who is probably the premier mm-hmm. Harvey Kurtzman collector. Uh, okay. But I would say, in terms of the book as a whole, uh, yes, a disproportionate amount came from the estate. Um, uh, Harvey was unable for a lot of reasons to save a lot of his own art, but he saved what he could. Um, And um, thankfully, um, Bill Gaines, though he kept the art, at least kept it. He didn't destroy it or toss it like many publishers. And when he finally decided to sell it, it gave a chance for serious collectors like Glenn and others uh, to pick it up. And then they, of course, treat it like uh, the... The, the Rembrandts that they are. Yeah. So. yeah. Glenn's collection is mythical. Yes. <laughs> um, Never heard of him before. Really? Oh, up. he's got like the massive underground comic collection well, I stuff. might be paying him a visit in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, I'm going to quickly transition because I realized we've got 15 minutes left and oh, we, haven't even got, we haven't even gotten funny. We haven't gotten mad. <laughs> <or? laughs> <laughs> Which is really the, the rest of Harvey's career for the most part. After. You thought you could compress this in an hour, did you? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I had hopes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, Mad, um, his, I guess, shining beacon of uh, cultural posterity. Posterity, and de- definitely. <laughs> I think you'd love that phrasing. <laughs> So let's 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 talk a little bit about Mad and the uh, and 
the follow-ups, I guess. I mean, we got the Humbug, we got Help, and Trump. Uh, Humbug uh, already reprinted by Fantagraphics, and Trump, which will be reprinted very soon. Uh, it's coming up next year from Dark Horse. Oh, okay. It'll I thought it was coming this summer. Uh, the complete Trump, which includes a lot of the unpublished material and a lot of the uh, preliminaries and things. Uh, so even if you have both issues of Trump, there'll be a lot of stuff in there no one's seen. Oh, I have neither. I'm really looking forward to it. So. Okay. So what was it about humor that he appreciated so much or dived into so readily? Well, again, one of the curious things about Harvey is he could do drama and humor equally well, and uh, that's not that common. Let's face it, most uh, of us um, are lucky to do one. And if you look uh, at other corollaries, you know, there's not that many uh, comedians who can play drama and uh Likewise, in the humor field, I mean, in the comic book field, um, clearly he proved with Hey Look that he had a knack for it. And in fact, that's how he got his job at EC was Bill Gaines looked at the EC samples and apparently laughed out loud uproariously for uh, quite some time and basically said, you're hired, kid, and then promptly assigned him to do horror stories. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because that's what they were doing and that's where there was a job. And so Harvey paid his dues and very quickly impressed Bill. And most serious collectors know this, so I won't spend a lot of time on it, but Harvey uh, was um, a scrupulous researcher, and when he did his war stories, every uniform, every button on every uniform, every tank, everything had to be researched. And obviously this is way before the digital age, (laughs) and poor Harvey had to spend endless hours at the public library going through reference books and a lot of murky black and white photos uh, taking, making copious sketches because, again, this is the pre-Xerox period. So other than checking out a book and bringing it home, um, everything had to be done via notes. So this was taking an inordinate amount of time to do, and uh, he just wasn't able to make as much money as the other primary editor, Al Feldstein. And so, basically, MAD was a way for him to do something that didn't require copious research. In fact, quite the opposite. It's all about imagination, right? Exactly. And uh, you touched earlier on the fact that he obviously loved the medium itself. So, its main, not main, but a primary focus was on parodying other famous comic strips, as well as the culture in general and, and, and advertising TV shows and such, but I think his favorite was making fun of a lot of the comic strips he loved, um, which um, were sometimes very easy to poke fun at. Yeah, um, and it should be noted that Mad started as a comic book. I don't think a lot of people know that it was a comic book before a magazine. Um, That's right. Specifically lampooned other comics, and it was in fact discovering those, I think in the late 80s, those reprints of those comics that made me a huge Kurtzman fan to begin with. I had no idea they existed, so... Maybe we can talk a little bit about how it became a magazine from those comic book <laughs> well, days. Well, again, it's hard to condense, but in a nutshell, we've got to remember this is coinciding with the uh, Dr. Frederick Wortham era and the whole uh, persecution of comics and the key over hearings in the Senate and such. So bottom line is that the uh, publishers who had nothing to lose, like uh, Goldwater, who ran Archie Comics, did their best to push through this uh, Comic Code Authority which imposed their own sterile standards on the 
of publishers who were both innovative like DC or who were doing a lot of, you know, arguably, um, you know, mind-rotting crap. And they, 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 they all basically um, found it increasingly tough to stay in business. And Bill Gaines found his line um, uh, uh, impossible to distribute. And um, so MAD was the most promising of the lot. Harvey convinced Bill and his mother, who controlled the purse strings, to put money into making uh, Mad a magazine because they could then escape the Comic Code Authority and be on newsstands with other magazines, um, which um, didn't have that uh, censorship umbrella. And so uh, he obviously succeeded, and uh, the... uh, comic was already very popular the magazine became even more popular and um four or five issues into it um harvey had his famous uh, falling out with Gaines and and left and uh mad uh, went on to even greater success uh under al feldstein and its circulation peaked at somewhere between two and three million copies uh, per month which is astonishing uh, given today, nothing can touch that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, basically, Harvey always wanted uh, to escape the the cheap pamphlet format on that rough pulp paper and the oftentimes off-register color. Again, as we discussed earlier, it was the lowest of the low. And for him, slick was a good word. It meant uh, newsstand. It meant nicer paper. It meant uh, better presses. And so even though Mad was uh, black and white, again, as a magazine, it was still slick. And um, in, in the minutes that are left, maybe you want to talk about the transition away, or do you want to... Yeah, I think we should move on yeah. to um, Trump humbug help in that period, because for me, that represents probably, I think, maybe the height of his artistic powers. I might be wrong, but that's <laughs> that's the well, most important period for me, which is why I'm happy these reprints are finally coming out. So. Yeah, um, I mean, in a nutshell, um, two publishing phenomenons both started at approximately the same time, Mad and Playboy. The big difference uh, is that Harvey created Mad but didn't own it. Um, Hefner created Playboy and obviously did control it. And uh, Hefner was a big fan of of Kurtzman's. He discovered uh, Mad right at the start while he was working late in Chicago and uh, got in touch with Kurtzman, and uh, Kurtzman was also, frankly, a fan of Playboy. When you, when, <laughs> and you put it in the context of the post-World War II male generation, Hefner was a truly a sexual revolutionary, and uh, he did something no one had done before. He took the uh, girly magazine, and he made it intellectually palatable by putting um, first-rank writers and cartoonists and photographers in with naked ladies. And, <laughs> um, you know, he had come from Esquire, where Esquire kind of did that, but they were much more restrained on the female side, and they had Vargas uh, um, pinups, which were voluptuous, but still short of what uh, Hefner was doing. So, so understand it was kind of a mutual admiration society, and uh, basically Hefner said uh, very bluntly to Harvey when Harvey expressed, you know, a desire to do something even slicker, which to him would have been to take MAD into a color format. Bill Gaines was not prepared to do that. 
And essentially, uh, Hefner said, look, if you ever want to leave that two-bit operation and come work for me, you're, you're welcome, and I'll give you what you really want. And when Hefner basically, you know, his eyes opened wide, and he said, are you serious? And Hefner said, absolutely. He said, if I were you, I'd go into Gaines's office and demand a controlling share of it, and if he didn't give it to you, come and work for me. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Um, gave Harvey the courage to basically... Um, uh, demand a 51% share of, uh, of MED. And, and, of course, that was an outrageous uh, proposition to Bill Gaines, who had inherited EC from his father and was kind of an old-fashioned paternalistic guy, but he was also deathly afraid to lose Harvey. And uh, he said, uh, you know, he would have given him at least a tenth, and he's also been known to have said he'd have gone as high as 49%. Um, but he certainly wasn't given a controlling share. And for Harvey, there was no compromise, because the truth is he really thought um, Gaines was kind of a schlumpy character with, without uh, the ability to ever take MED, where Harvey really wanted to take it. And, 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 and Hefner was a much more seductive character. And if you put them side by side, I mean, there's no comparison. Um, Gaines was a schlumpy character. Yeah, and it's hard to imagine what Kurtzman's career might have been had he got that share of MAD, whether his the one he demanded or the one that Gaines offered. Um, but fortunately, I don't think he got um, any <laughs> any piece of MAD whatsoever and went on to do no. his personal work, which um, you know I think was an artistic success. But um, as Harvey would learn, it, you know, it, it didn't end up being a commercial success, and I think it put his career on a very different trajectory after that. It did, and, and unfortunately, you know, both Trump, which lasted only two issues, Humbug, which lasted only 11 issues, um, um, and then Help, which was uh, somewhat more successful, 20-some issues, but none of them remotely approached the success of MAD, and then the last quarter century of his life, he had to toil for Hefner again for Annie Fanny, which most fans and critics argue was not the highlight of his career, even though it was arguably the most beautiful comic strip ever created. It has its merits, but um, it was kind of like uh, going back in a way and working for Stan Lee because Hefner wanted everything done in a certain way, and it was uh, formulaic in a way that stifled to geniuses like Kurtzman and Elder. Well, I have a great ambivalence towards Hefner because of that. Um, I mean, yeah. on one hand, you know, I, I think you're right. He really was, uh, uh, in some ways, kind of a counterculture hero. I don't know if counterculture is the right word, but, I mean, I think he made a lot of great progress with the magazine. He published some of my heroes, Lenny Bruce, Shel Silverstein. It goes on. Um, but I don't um, care for the constrictions he put on Mr. Kurtzman. And uh, in Kurtzman's own words, um, I think it's in this book, um, the satire of uh, Little Annie Fanny conflicted with the sexiness of the strip, meaning he was kind of forced to do smarmy sex jokes while doing the satire. And um, I always found that curious, given the amount of articles that were in Playboy that were not in any way sex-based. You know, they printed short fiction and interviews, and I thought he should have just let Kurtzman do his best work, really. I agree. He should have said, I trust you, and, you know, subject to obvious... Uh uh, excesses. <laughs> I mean, I think he would have had essentially uh, the equivalent of MAD 
and it could have been sexy to a large degree, but it didn't have to be, and you didn't have to have a heroine who was forced to be naked in every last panel uh, in a way that was very restrictive. Yeah. Um, the other thing you have to remember about uh, Hefner that a lot of people don't know is he started out as a cartoonist, and he was not a good cartoonist. He was <laughs> a frustrated cartoonist. And so I think he, the, the way he fulfilled his cartooning destiny was by directing two guys he admired the hell out of, but um, uh, he wasn't capable, I think, of truly directing them. Yeah. I oh, hate to Rob say this. The, time. the show is coming to an end. The show is coming to the end, and we've, uh, and that's a fascinating thing is we've covered so little of the content. I mean, help. I mean, there's so much in help with Steinem and John Cleese and Terry Gilliam, like all these folks. Robert well, Crumb being back printed. In your show again sometime. Well, it should I have think been a two-parter. I think, yeah, I think this now. should have been a. Because we didn't get to 1969-1970 when uh, Mr. Kitchen would actually build a relationship with Kurtzman <laughs> and Eisner, who, ended, who are two of my gods. And, um, you know, regardless of the fact we didn't get to that history, it should be noted that, um, in fact, it was Dennis Kitchen that brought Will Eisner out of his lost weekend and started publishing his work again and got Harvey Kurtzman's work back into print in, would it be this, as early as the uh, 71? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and so I owe you a huge debt of gratitude for that. So I discovered those guys because <laughs> Thank you. Of you. I'll send you an invoice. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dennis. My pleasure, guys. I um, hope we can do it again sometime. I, I hope, yeah. hope so, too. And I'd love to have you back on just to talk about you and um, your own work and your own experience and stuff because there is so much to talk about there as well. And obviously an hour just doesn't do it. In the meantime, buy Art of Harvey Kurtzman. I'm telling all the <laughs> listeners out there, it's the best book I've seen in the last oh, yeah. five years. If you're going to spend any money on any kind of collection, that's the one. So says James. Thank you so much, Dennis. You bet. Okay, have a good day. You bet. Good night, guys. Bye. Bye. Um, quick reminder, folks, as we've been talking about, that's Dennis Kitchen. The book is The Art of Harvey Kurtzman. Also, um, uh, as a segue, the underground classics, uh, transformation of comics into comics, um, which features a lot of really great reprints of, um, underground comic pages, including, uh, local wonderments like why I was just looking at his page and it just totally popped out of my mind. I could use some wonderments. Rand Holmes, wonderful Rand Holmes, Robert Crumb, Art Spiegelman, um, the list goes on. So thank you so much, Dennis, for joining us. Up next is La French Connection, and I'm going to end with some more, um, you know, that kind of music those underground guys like listening to. Say bye, James. Bye, folks. story about Minnie the Moocher. She was a red-hot hoochie-coocher. She was the roughest, toughest rail. But Minnie had a heart as big as a hay whale. Holy, 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 hol
smoking He loved him though he was coking He took her down to Chinatown He showed her how to kick the gong around Showed her how to kick the gong around 